This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 100. The best, the popular vote, and the underrated. Yes, we made it to 100. We've been talking about this for a couple of months now. This podcast has been such a labor of love for the last three years. I've had the immense pleasure to chat with some of the most accomplished yoga teachers, wellness experts, and spiritual teachers in the West so they could share with you their work and their best-kept secrets. Some were genuinely excited to come on. Others I had to slightly harass to make it happen. And there's so many more I have reached out to who actually never made it on. Either way, I want to take a moment to say thank you to all our guests so far for giving freely their time, for sharing their expertise, and for being so open and generous in the process. For today's episode, we are celebrating by first doing a recap of the episodes that were the most listened to in the last three years. We'll also go over some of the episodes you guys voted for and entered with our celebration giveaway. And I want to finish by underlining a couple of episodes which I think were slightly underrated, or at least they were very special to me, and I think they should have made it to the top of the charts. The other way we're celebrating today is by sharing who is our winner with this huge giveaway we've been talking about for the last five episodes. So if you voted for your favorite episode, thank you so much for entering the giveaway. Are you ready to hear who is our winner? Hmm. Well, before I say their name, let's do this. I'm going to say which episode they voted for because a handful of you voted for that episode. So it will just narrow it down and keep the tension if you're listening. So our winner voted for episode 58, which was called Restorative Yoga in the Importance of Slowing Down with Judith Hansen Lasseter. Now, let's go to their takeaways. You had to vote and then share one takeaway from the episode. So our winner wrote this following takeaway. Some people's cholesterol level dropped up to 50 points after one hour of restorative yoga. She's talking about a study that Judith Hansen Lasseter was referring to. She continues by saying, cholesterol is a measure of stress. The sequence in restorative yoga is not the key part. It's more about taking the weight of stress off the body. This practice is so, so powerful. Well, if you wrote this comment, you've probably recognized yourself by now. For all of the others, our winner for our 100th episode giveaway is Flo Dupree. Flo is from the US. Congratulations, Flo. I will send you an email to get your address and then I will send you all your gifts. I want to say another huge thank you this time to our sponsors for this giveaway. You are winning, Flo, a $100 gift card from Atlara. You can go and buy yourself new yoga clothes or at leisure clothes. You're winning an amazing yoga mat from Lifeform. You are winning a Neko bolster and an acupressure mat and pillow set from Ajna Wellbeing. You'll see they're so cozy and so soft. You are winning a role model starter kit and a class pass for one of Jill's Miller Union Fit class. You are winning a month on my membership and video library. You are winning an eye pillow from Spritz Wellness London. And finally, the book Move, Connect and Play from Jason Niemer. Amazing. This has been so exciting. Now, before we jump in today's episode, let me remind you just of a few last thing. Number one, I'm leading a yoga retreat in Mexico next November. So if you want to join, there's still a handful of spots left. In parallel, I've launched a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to create scholarship for that yoga retreat. So if you know anyone who can't afford to come on a yoga retreat but could really use it, then they can apply, you can apply. Or you can donate to support them in coming on to this adventure. Number three, we have a premium membership here on the podcast. So if you'd like to get access to the premium content, you have the video format of most of our episodes. You have a ton of different practices that you can join and follow along, shorter and longer. There's over 200 video classes in the library. So all you need to do is visit withribbon.com slash you slash Erica Belanger. And there you have a few options of memberships, one starting at $5 a month, going all the way to $100 a month. And of course, you'll find all the link in the show notes for all of these. 
All right, with this, let's get to our celebratory recap. First, let's talk about our top five most listened episode at the time of the recording. So of course, this top five might change over time, but right now, the most listened episode two is number 25, The Eight Limbs with Janet Stone. If you don't know her, Janet Stone is an internationally renowned yoga teacher and teacher trainer. I thought she would be a great person to chat about the eight limbs with, and I was it wrong, let me tell you. This is probably the episode that contains the most educational content in the least amount of time. If you want to learn more about the eight limbs, this is a great resource for you. Now, the eight limbs of yoga, as she explains it, are part of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. They are our pathway to relieve human suffering, a guide to clean up our behaviors, our actions, and reactions. So listen to her. Here she's giving a cliff note explanation of the two first yamas, which are ethical rules within yoga philosophy. So just to give you a full context, there's the eight limbs of yoga. The first limb is the yama, and in the yamas, there's five of them, so five yamas. So here she's talking about number one and number two. Within the yamas, there are five yamas. There are five of them. And we begin with the very first, which is non-harming or non-violence. Mm-hmm. And as obvious as that may seem to everyone, I mean, this is um, continuously cleaning up our internal chatter, what we say to ourselves, continuously mm-hmm. cleaning up our relationship with the world, what we eat, what we purchase, what we do, what we say, all of that. If we're creating violence and harming another living creature to eat or to have clothing or to, then we're already outside the realm of ahimsa. Mm -hmm. Ahimsa, Ahimsa is the very first, the very first, the very first. And probably the very last that we'll have to continually return to it again and again. Yeah. Yeah. We're spiraling. Yeah. And then also, you know, then there's the long conversations of, well, am I harming myself by not having this thing? Am I, you know, so it's, there's so many um, subtleties around it. But when we truly tune in, when we calm the chatter, we know what feels aligned with nonviolence and what doesn't. Mm Mm-hmm. In, again, what we purchase, what we consume, what we eat, media as well, like what we're watching, Mm. all of that. The second in the yamas is satya, truthfulness, uh, sincerity, this absolute willingness to be naked and vulnerable within who you are and to not um, have so many defenses and protective measures around Um, trying to prop up this image of yourself that is not yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where so many of the lies come in. Um, Laziness, boredom, discomfort, um, wanting to fit into the pack, not wanting to be sort of outside the realm. It's like, oh, I love Greece. Ah, me too, when you (laughs) haven't ever been, you know, or, or whatever it is. It's like these total throwaway lies all the time that pretty much pepper our days. And beginning to clean those up, you know, all the way from grandiose lies to really tiny, small. Yeah, that we might not even really notice. Yeah. And even in our asana. Yeah, exactly. In our asana practice as well. You know, it's like, what am I really, truly up for today? No, I wasn't up for Ashtavakrasana and yet I did it. I wonder why my shoulder hurts. Mm. You know, Um, one thing I have to say about Satya is that become a student of your body because Mm. the body never lies. Hmm. I'm not only talking about, oh, shoulder injury, oh, my knee or my joints or my back. I'm talking about it hasn't, when you're feeling something that is off, your body knows. When something, you know, when some situation isn't right, your body speaks a thousand (laughs) volumes to you, but we tune it down. We don't listen. We definitely shove it aside. There you have it, a quick dive into nonviolence and truthfulness as principles to live by. If you want to learn more, check out episode 25. Now we are going to our next top five episode, and this is number 58, Restorative Yoga and the Importance of Slowing Down with Judith Hansen Lasseter. 
Judith has a PhD in East-West Psychology, she's a trained physical therapist, and she's been teaching yoga since 1971. She is the co-founder of the Iyengar Yoga Institute in San Francisco. She's also a founder of the Yoga Journal magazine, and she is the president of the California Yoga Teacher Association. She has written eight books on yoga, particularly restorative yoga. So not only is she one of the best people to talk to on the subject, but This episode was one of my personal favorite recording sessions of all time. So in this piece of our interview, she talks about the research on the effects of restorative yoga and the general benefits of the practice. The body's trying to find that homeostasis, that evenness, that even keel. And stress is probably the most important cause of dysfunction mm-hmm. disruptor disruptor and whatever is with you reducing your stress levels are going to change your biochemical picture your mood your attitude your thoughts your breathing blah blah so so what i believe is happens is when we get in that state and we can talk about the three stages of shavasana if you want to ask me about that later mm-hmm. um is we get into that deep resting state, we take the metaphoric weight off the body. And it now has its resources available for healing. So, you know, when you're sick, really sick, you just want to lie down in bed. Because you, we know instinctively, take, I have a certain amount of energy, I need to take the 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 demands of movement. And if you've ever recovered from a major surgery or an accident or anything like that, you know that you can't believe how much energy it might take just to go downstairs and have dinner and go back upstairs. Mm -hmm. Like it takes, our daily life takes a ton of energy that we just take for granted. Mm -hmm. Getting up, getting dressed, taking a shower. Like Yeah, there's movement and there's also just the impact of gravity. Exactly. So it takes a lot of energy. So when we get into this deeply restful state, what my explanation to the to the team was, think of taking a huge weight off your body. And then the immune system writes itself. The, re, the re- reproductive system can function more better. Your digestion, elimination, um, people's skin rashes get affected. I mean, some of the letters I've gotten over the years, mm. a lot of things shift for people, n- not because every yoga yoga teacher who knows about this says, well, what was the sequence? What were the poses? And I'm shaking my head. It's not that. It's the process of relaxing. It was so hard to choose just one excerpt. I love this whole episode. And I hope that this little piece makes you want to listen to the rest of the episode. She shares important techniques, funny stories, and more. Now, our next top five most listened episode is our very first one called When You Say Yoga. We had a round table with four newer teachers to chat about what it means to them, how it's defined in literature, and how it's seen by their students. In this excerpt, we are talking about the definition of yoga. We started with the direct translation, which is to yoke, a union, or to bring into balance. And we are discussing what does it mean to bring mind, body, and spirit in union instead of cultivating, even if it's unconsciously, a sense of separateness. Something that has always stuck with me was she said that when we feel connected to one another or connected to a thing or a tree or whatever it is, when we feel connected, we don't want to harm that thing Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So the sense of when we take that, Mm -hmm. you know, separateness away from it all, it just creates Mm -hmm. this wonderful, beautiful thing. To me, that sounds like love. Yeah, Yeah. I was going to say that. Even with yourself, Mm -hmm. being really, truly connected to who you are, so you can be able to be compassionate with yourself and loving with yourself. We're so used to actually being kind of criticizing yeah and mm-hmm. even violent i want to say towards yeah. ourselves negative self-talk yeah. and all yeah. that and i think that comes from the place of feeling disconnected mm-hmm. disconnected from ourselves disconnected from others from the world yeah and fear mm-hmm. also a misidentification with who you really are mm-hmm. like thinking that you're your mind or your body when you're really not you're this other thing this awareness of that 
the core, like what we were talking about being connecting inward rather than, I mean, yes, we have a body and we have a mind, but we're neither of those things Mm -hmm. is what the yoga practice is Mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. So when you're criticizing your whatever, like Mm -hmm. long middle (laughs) toe or something like that, you're not really criticizing Mm -hmm. your true self because it's not who you are. Yeah. That's the ego versus the true nature. Yeah, I hear a lot about it. We can, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and then just to kind of bring it back to the asana practice, it's... um, You know, I I think and I I think what, you know, yoga is speaking to and why there are these asanas, uh, which came secondary to, you know, awareness and breath and meditation. But um, it's this it's this vehicle to be able to elicit that spirit or that connection. Mm -hmm. Um, So all these poses that we do, whether it's, you know, just a simple child's pose or, you know, some crazy inversion, it, it. it, it is this just this vehicle to to find that um, that space of peace of connection. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that really transformed my practice was the union between being and practicing mm-hmm. yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being yeah. on the mat, being with my feelings, with my emotions, with what's going on in the body, in the mind, in my breath, rather than following. A, the rhythm of someone else or following yeah. do you think that was you just becoming more conscious in your practice probably yeah mm-hmm. the definition of of yoga that i ha, that has been most helpful for me yeah. is that yoga is the process of replacing old patterns with new and more appropriate patterns and that's by T, um krishnacharya yeah um and that's just because it was easier for me to wrap my head around that than it was to wrap my head around the word union or yeah. absorption, as also I've heard mm. Samadhi yeah. described as. And I was like, where am I absorbing to? Where? Like, who am I? What's <laughs> right. going on? Right. But then when you think about it almost as like a process of like just looking at everything that you do in a habitual way and trying to make all of those things more conscious, like you're saying, from practicing just like going through the motions and then actually being there Mm. and doing that with consciousness and with awareness, that has really, really helped me the most. That's Mm. very interesting. And it relates to another um, division that I have here from... Bhagavad Gita, where it said, yoga is a deliverance from contact with pain and sorrow. Mm-hmm. Which for me, that was one of my favorites. It's not a typical one that you hear. It's not the Yoga Sutra definition, right? right? right. Um, which is yoga is the restraint of the modification of the mind. And that's probably the one you'll see most often, yeah. I would say. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't talk to everybody. It doesn't speak to mm-hmm. you necessarily. Do you well, that's like- why he wrote all the other sutras after that. <laughs> It felt pretty surreal to re-listen to our first episode, but thank you so much to Jenna Mitchell, Kara Edwards, and Monique Hahn for being willing to jump onto our very first episode, probably not knowing too much what to expect. Our next most listened episode is number 75, The Art of Sequencing with Jason Crandall. Name one of the yoga teachers shaping the future of yoga by Yoga Journal. Jason is considered a teacher's teacher. He has taught countless teacher training and regularly presents teacher training content at esteemed conferences. I've taken classes and trainings with Jason, and I always really loved his method. Since I resonate so much with his technique, I was really happy to sit down with him to talk about sequencing. Let's listen to him explain why learning a sequence method is so important in his opinion and why teachers should focus on sequencing before creativity. Let me start with what I think teachers should not do. (laughs) Right. Um, I think think teachers should not focus first on creativity in their sequencing. I think it's a horrible idea. Um, And... And, the, and like the reason why this is, is because there's actually a lot of skills that need to be in place before you focus on creativity. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that creativity isn't important, but I'm saying it, it becomes this buzzword. And even in people's 200 hour teacher training program, they come out and they're thinking like, I should have creative sequencing. Mm-hmm. Let me put it to you like this. It's like, 
imagine that I am just learning to play an instrument. Should I focus on playing that instrument creatively? No. <laughs> imagine I'm just learning to cook. Should I be like, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on creative food and wine pairing. No, mm-hmm. the skills aren't there. There's foundations the to be learned. There. The foundation is not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so what a structured sequencing method allows for is it allows the foundational tools and techniques and architecture to be in place so that you then can be creative, right? Yeah. So ultimately, like a sequence should be an expression of what you want to teach. I used to say this, like an, an, uh, um, a sequence should be an expression of who you are. And, I, and I've, I've kind of like, I've downgraded that to some degree. You know what I mean? I've been like, no, 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 no. Like, mm-hmm. let's just make it simple. A sequence should be an expression of what you want to teach on that day, right? And so you decide to yourself like any educator would, what am I trying to teach today? Mm-hmm. And who am I teaching? And what is the best way to do that? And then you work backwards from there and then you can start to be playful with, with transitions. You can be playful. Like there's all sorts of little ways you can be creative Mm -hmm. if you've already identified what is the, like, what are you trying to do today? And if you have the skills and the foundation to do that, then you can be a little bit more innovative Um, Because then your creativity doesn't obscure the point. Your creativity doesn't take you down a dark alley (laughs) that that just doesn't actually work. For the next 20 minutes, he goes over his technique with a template example of a 60-minute flow class. And since we spend most of the episode on this, I couldn't share this whole template here with you. But if you go back to the episode, you'll hear the whole thing, right? So episode 75 with Jason Crandall, The Art of Sequencing. Our last most listened episode is number 46, Chakras 101, with Anodea Judith. Anodea is considered the foremost Western writer on the chakras, with several best-selling books. She's known to be selective with her interviews, but one day she just showed up to my yoga class and... I was kind of taken aback for a minute to see her in the room as a student, but I was also totally honored. We chatted after class, and so I jumped on the occasion to or to invite her on the podcast. So once we were talking, she defines the chakras as center of organization for the reception, assimilation, storage, and expression of our life force energy. We go on to talk about the philosophical and experiential context that supports that system. And one of my big aha moments from this conversation with Anodia was about how the chakras also map human history and evolution of consciousness in humans. And that wasn't something I had really contemplated a lot before. We need integrative systems that map the full spectrum of human potential. And it is also a guide for taking us through this period of evolution. How so? Well, I see the chakras mapping onto stages of human history and that right now we Mm -hmm. are nearing the end of the third chakra era, which I call the love of power, and moving into a fourth chakra era, the power of love. And what we're seeing is the last gasp of this power over, you know, one man on top has the power to make decisions that affect billions of people. That's an old model. And we are growing up and learning to co-create and we're educated and we have the internet and we can communicate. We're changing systems. And that's why everything's such a mess right now. Mm. So just like the chakras have a correlation with the developmental age in children, it also does it for a full society. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Wow, exactly. I didn't think of so that. We had our infancy in society when we were in the Paleolithic hunter-gatherers. That's we didn't know much about the world. We couldn't read or write. You know, we were just developing tools. Then uh-huh. we put seeds in the ground and we learned to plant and irrigate with water. That's the water element of second chakra, and that took us into the second chakra stage. That's when we began to build ships and sail and trade, and that was an evolution in consciousness. 
Then we came into our first cities and they were organized. I mean, you think about, you know, 50,000 people living in an area the size of our town, Nevada, you know, um, without any technology, without anybody knowing how to read and write, without knowing about science, disease, medicine. And that took a strong-armed person to tell everybody else what to do. I'll get this thing together and organize it. And that was the power over model. And that was appropriate back then Mm. when society was in its early childhood. But we're not there anymore. We're adolescents. We can read and write. We have the tools of power at our hands. Now we're going to the next level. What will that look like in your mind? Well, I think many things. I think more heart-based, more compassionate, more caring about the underdog. Um, more caring about whether everyone has enough to eat and a place to live, more caring about diversity and how we organize and cooperate and collaborate through diversity, um, more collaborative models, even our businesses such as, you know, uh, you know, Wikipedia, which is free and YouTube and all these free services. And then we have, you know, Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, which is like not having a middleman, just people connecting. You work when you want to. You do it all through your phone. All these collaborative technologies, collaborative economies, um, more care for the environment, which is deplorable right now. Mm-hmm. And um, But I think that as the environment gets more crucial, that's going to come up as a new organizing principle, really. She goes on with an overview of the seven chakra system. She shares her best tip to balance her chakras, whether they are deficient and excessive, and how to know whether they're deficient and excessive. So that rounds up our top five most listened to episode. And you'll find the link for all of them in the show notes to go directly without having to search through the hundred episodes we've recorded so far. And if you voted for your favorite episode... Here is um, the episodes that were the most voted for. So we had this giveaway for the upcoming or now 100th episode, which is today. And to enter that giveaway, you had to vote for your favorite episode and you had to share one takeaway with me just to prove that you actually listened to it. So I absolutely loved reading all your takeaways from your favorite episode. It was such a gift to me to actually sit down and do that. I was also very happily surprised to see the amount of votes and to read your comments on my solo episode. So I have a few episodes that I did by myself with no guest. And number 93, a three-step guide to being more yourself, was one of those episodes, and it was the most voted for episode during our giveaway. So shout out to all our voters, and here's an example. Mailing voted for number 93 and shared. The moment I heard this episode, I was super confused about my path and my decisions. And I remember being in the car alone, looking for a sign. I wrote yoga podcasts on Spotify and on and off your mat came out. And I don't know why, and I don't know what, but something made me choose this episode. I went to a lake with my journal and I started to write all the questions with their answers. And I felt so relieved. Thank you so much for guiding me. My takeaway is stay focused on yourself, what you want and what you can control. So let's listen to a part of this episode together. Get to know yourself, step one. And as you get to know yourself, step two, start to embrace who you are more fully. Then our step three to become yourself again or to be more of yourself is to show up. Right now, you know who you are and you've embraced it, you've accepted, you've loved it. Then you need to show up, you need to show that to other people. So, showing up is twofold every time you do something that aligns with who you are or who you want to be in the future, you're casting a vote for yourself to become that version of yourself. And every time you do something for yourself that you enjoy, that you need, you reinforce your connection with yourself, you solidify your personal relationship. So start to take actions to confirm who you are to yourself. Do a hobby you love. Set a personal goal and take steps to achieve that, a goal that is just for you and about you, right? Create a sense of actively being you and working on things that 
you want more of in your life. Not what you think you should focus on, not what your partner thinks is important for you or your parents, but you. Do things that make you happy, that make you smile. So go back to the questions of the step number one and that contrast table where you were feeling the most like yourself and the least like yourself and do more of the things that feel the most like yourself and less of the things that feel not in alignment with who you are. So that's a good way to start. And then really plan them, like put them in your calendar, be purposeful about them. And you can also go back to all the questions. So let's say you said you were an introvert, then plan some alone and quiet time for yourself every week. Let's say you said you were a morning person, but your partner is a night owl. Well, maybe you can create a night routine where the two of you have a moment to really connect And then you go to bed earlier than them because that's better for you. Let's say you said that you love to paint, but you never do it. Sign up for a class, right? Let's say you thrive when you have accountability and one of your goals is to run a marathon. Well, ask a friend to join you on the workout challenge or to join you into this journey into the marathon. So use all of this information about yourself to start to make choices and take actions so you can experience that more, right? Keep going through the question and choose direct action that you can implement in your life. As of today, as of right now, even while you're listening, you probably have ideas. So you can even pull up your phone right now, take a note, write down like, oh, I need to start doing this. That would make me feel more like myself. Our second most voted episode for the giveaway was number 87, also a solo episode called Five Reasons Why You Procrastinate. Emily, one of our listeners, voted for episode 87 on procrastination and said the following, listening to the episode made me feel like Erica was living life alongside me. She shared best practices without impairing shame and gave me actionable steps to take that didn't require that much effort. Well, thank you, Emily, for your comment and your vote. Here's an example of one of the reasons we procrastinate and some ideas on how to deal with it. The first reason why we procrastinate, the first issue with this pattern is as simple as a lack of awareness of understanding ourselves, what we need and our coping mechanism. So you might have found that through COVID, you were procrastinating much more than normal or than average. So becoming aware of why you procrastinate, who you are, what you need, what you're trying to do when you procrastinate will definitely help you break the pattern. So that's really the first step to look at. So that lack of awareness and understanding in ourself and our coping mechanism just allows us to stay on autopilot and do the thing that is the easiest in the moment and do the thing that requires the less effort in the moment. But it doesn't mean that that's the thing we need and it doesn't mean that that's the thing that will bring us happiness in the long run. So the real cause of procrastination, and you might think it's a time management issue, but it's really not. Time management is a strategy, it's a skill that is part of a bigger picture that is included in procrastination. But procrastination is an emotional regulation problem. I'm going to say this again. It's not a time management problem. It's an emotional regulation problem. So what does that mean? It's a way of coping. It's a way of coping with challenging emotions and negative moods that are induced by certain tasks that we have to do. Um, Tasks that might bring up boredom or anxiety or insecurity in ourselves or frustration or resentment or self-doubt and beyond. You can, you know, fill in the blank with any uncomfortable, challenging emotion you might experience. And procrastination is about being more focused on the immediate urgency of managing that negative emotion then getting on with a task or with a choice or a situation that will bring us something positive in the future. So it seems ironic because we procrastinate to avoid a negative feeling, but we end up feeling even worse 
when we procrastinate regularly. So it's a really faulty coping mechanism. And we don't have a better mechanism for challenging emotions and negative moods, so we let avoidance of pain give us direction. We let our avoidance of pain create our priorities. We let our avoidance of pain stop us from creating plans, goals, and establishing structures. So if you want to stop procrastinating, you need, number one, to understand what emotions you're avoiding and why you're avoiding these particular emotions. And of course, We want to avoid pain. That's really obvious. <laughs> If that's your answer, you're right. You're on the right track. But you need to go further. You also need to understand what procrastination is bringing to you, what needs it is meeting in your life. Because whatever we do in life, we have a reason for it. I promise it is not random. And you'll start to see the patterns as you start to see what you avoid and what you get out of procrastination. There's kind of a balance there that makes it worth it for you in the moment. And as you start to see the pattern and as you start to see the impact and the consequences of procrastination on your life, naturally you're going to want to do it less. And I'm not saying like, oh, that's a super easy, quick fix. It's definitely not. It's the hardest fix of everything I'm going to talk about today. I'm just starting with that because it's understanding who you are and taking actions in the present moment with things that are challenging and uncomfortable. And instead of avoiding them, facing them. And when you do, then you will not procrastinate. Procrastination is your not facing choice of what is uncomfortable. Our third most voted for episode is number 92, called Your Nervous System and Digestion with Rachel Everett. Rachel is a registered dietitian specializing in using a holistic approach to identify and address the root causes of digestive symptoms. Christina, one of our listeners, voted for this episode and said, I've always had gut and digestive issue. This episode allowed me to connect the dots and understand why I've been struggling so much. So listen here to Rachel talking about the link between our nervous system and our digestive system, particularly the impact that the vagus nerve can have on our symptoms. The vagus nerve is the major highway of the gut-brain axis. So most people have heard of that, you know, uh, at this point, but what that is, is like our gut and our brain are intimately connected. And so what's going on in our brain is going to affect our gut. What's going on in our gut is going to affect our brain. And so there's this telephone line communicating, you know, on a minute by minute basis. Yeah, <laughs> microsecond. So that, yeah. And so that, uh, that telephone line is the vagus nerve. So, and it's really the kind of the light switch for your parasympathetic nervous system, because that's controlling all of those activities, that parasympathetic nervous system that runs through the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is the one that's, hey, poking on the stomach. Hey, it's time to release stomach acid. Hey, pancreas. Uh, yeah, yeah, gallbladder. Hey, it's time to do motility. And so um, that's kind of the arm of the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. It's such a cool nerve. It kind of looks like this tree, right? Super yeah. long branches that go in all the parts of your digestive system from the esophagus all the way down to your anus, right? Yeah. Covering every yeah. part of it. So yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So now that we have a little clear idea of what this magical cranial nerve is and does, how can we improve our digestive system by nurturing, by activating, by stimulating our vagus nerve or vagal response? Yeah. So like I said, people that have been chronically stressed or they're just stressed on, you know, maybe not chronically, but it, they want to practice stimulating their vagus nerve. This will overall help with digestion because like I said, you know, it's responsible for um, digestive activities. So what you can do to actually stimulate it is things like, yeah, breathing exercises. So um, deep breathing, uh, I really like that one. Another thing is humming 
loud singing, honestly, anything that stimulates the soft palate mm-hmm. of um, like the roof of your mouth uh, will stimulate that vagus nerve. And would you um, do that right before a meal or would you just do that regularly in, you know, you create yourself a practice, you do that, or you take the time to do deep breathing before eating or to sing while maybe you prepare your meal, kind of get yourself yeah. not only in the mood, but also prepare the nervous system to be in the digestive, um, yeah, state. I think, I think, you know, finding what works for people, I definitely would say, you know, it's not like a magic pill where you do it once a week and it's going to make a difference. You're not going to see that difference. You really have to do it on a daily basis. So whether you're just like, Hey, I can commit to gargling for 30 seconds to a minute after brushing my teeth in the morning, then great. Like that's, you know, that's one step and that's perfect. Um, or maybe you're like, Hey, like I like singing in the shower and I also like singing in my car and I, um, you know, there's definitely not too much that you can do for that. So, uh, I think it's more about how can you picture or how can you fit that into your life in a way that, uh, is sustainable. Cause if it's another chore to do, if you're like, oh, I need to do this and then I need to do that. You're actually adding stress in your life. <laughs> yeah. You're adding stress and it's like the opposite effect that we're intending. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So you mentioned gargling, singing, humming, deep breaths. What else? Breaths. Yeah. Meditation, prayer, chanting, gagging. I don't like that one, <laughs> uh, but some, you know, some people will do that. I, um, Yeah. Be careful with that one, but you could do contrast showers. So like the last 30 seconds of your shower, you can turn it, um, as cold as you can handle. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. that actually will stimulate the vagus nerve as well. Um, and there's also some really good movements. So there's a book called the healing power of the vagus nerve, which I know, you know about Erica. I actually have right here. If I'll show it to the video. Um, and there's some exercises in the back of that book. Yeah. That, uh, are really great to incorporate as well. Um, so yeah, there's several ways of doing it. I think it's just a matter of picking something and sticking with it and being consistent. Go on to the show notes to see the complete list of episodes that were voted for during the giveaway and one example of common for each if you want to just read what other people have to say about them before you head on and listen to them. Now, I want to finish today's episode and today's recap with two special mentioned. So I clearly remember, like it was yesterday, starting this podcast and dreaming about what it could become. Before even recording my first episode, I said to a friend, one day I will have Rob Stryker on. He laughed out loud and said, that would be amazing, in a voice that also said, but impossible. (laughs) Well, that day happened in August 2020, and number 64 was created, Sanctuary Meditation and Yoga Nidra with Rod Stryker. Rod is a world-renowned yoga and meditation teacher, and he's been guiding and sharing his wisdom for over 40 years now. So listen to him talk about Yoga Nidra, a practice I personally love to do and to teach. I'm first encountering Yoga Nidra in, in like 1980, 81. And um, my teacher would lead us through these kind of very, I don't even, I, at the time I didn't even know what was happening to me, but I knew something was happening. Yeah. So you would lie down or even he taught them occasionally sitting, but you could lie down and just all of this extraordinary journey and uh, that slowly but piece by piece you would be led into deeper levels of relaxation and then ultimately into this state that is referred to in the scriptures as yoga nidra what is yoga nidra it means yoga literally means yogic sleep or sleep with awareness and what is that i mean we all go to sleep but we don't always abide in aware sleep Mm-hmm. Um, and the distinction is that this is a state that is the convergence of meditation and sleep. Your body is fundamentally asleep, and then that could be measured in EEG, EKG. You're in a delta pattern, ideally. You're, uh, so your brain is in the quietest, most relaxed, deepest state of sleep 
equivalent to what scientists would call non-REM or uh, non-REM stage three deep sleep. But there's just this thread of being conscious and all distinctions effectively have vanished. And so at that point, you rest in really sublime, sublime sleep or enlightened sleep is what I'm, what I call it. In 1980, or even, and I didn't even really start teaching it for about 10 years. I kind of went back and suddenly got inspired and started teaching it. And uh, students responded to it like it's, it, because it just feels so good. It does. You know, it's magical. so good. <laughs> and you just lie down. And as I said, you know, the worst that can happen is you fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the intention is to hover in the sublime sleep. But in case you just go to normal sleep, it's already a really good nap. You probably need it if you go there. You, if you can't need stay it. awake. You have permission to fall asleep. Totally. Yeah. But so it's not a total loss. And, you know, I mean, there's some interesting studies around this. And I, I'm doing a lot of research because I'm writing a book about it. Uh, so, you know, NASA figured out that if you, NASA figured out that if you sleep, if you take a 20, you take a 20, 25 minute nap, it improves your cognition by like 35%. Overall, ta- like overall ability to complete tasks by like over 50%. Wow. So they actually encourage, they encourage astronauts to take naps before they do stuff, mm-hmm. right? Google figured that out. Now you go to, you work for Google. You, they're actually sleep pods, right? They want you to take a nap before you try and innovate something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so the worst that happens is you're going to not only be physically rested, but your mind's going to work more effectively. But what's happened now in its popularity over the last, um, let's say, decade, when I started teaching in the 90s, I can tell you that even in the late 90s, there was only like maybe three or four people in the United States teaching it. And now it's become super popular. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of times when things get popular, something will get lost or there'll be a lack of clarity that gets handed down. It's kind of like the, you know, the spiritual version of the telephone game. Um, and, uh, you know, every, every generation kind of, maybe there's a loss. And so what I would argue is that a lot of the time now, uh, uh, yoga nidra, because of some of the more popular versions of it, there's this very specific template of things that you do. And you're even told that if you follow this, if you fall asleep while you're hearing the, the dictates of the narrative, it's the same as if you were awake. Mm-hmm. That's, that's counter to what I learned. Mm. This sublime sleep recalibrates us and recalibrates our perception of ourselves. Yoga Nidra is both a practice, so in a way it doesn't matter what you do, but it's a state of consciousness. If you don't get to the state of consciousness, then you're only doing the practice, you're not experiencing the state. A bit like yoga in general. Yoga is a state, yoga is a practice, but it's also a state that, you know, it's not because you're doing asana that you're necessarily doing yoga. (laughs) Exactly. And in fact, you can do yoga and not experience the state. You can experience the state and not do awesome. My second special mention award goes to Sharon Salzberg. Episode 34 was called Real Love, Mindfulness and Loving Kindness. I remember hanging up the phone with a huge smile on my face and skipping away to the kitchen to find my partner and tell him about the episode. I've always looked up to her and admired her work, and she is a world-renowned meditation teacher and author. I had just finished her book called Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection when I decided to reach out to her for an interview, and I was honestly kind of shocked that she accepted. So listen to her here talk about how she views love. The book um, almost came out of this one line in a movie. The movie was called uh, Dan in Real Life. And the line is, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Mm, Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. So it's very hard to answer that question. Love, And of course, I've been asked that question a lot. But I I think of it as this ability that we all have uh, to connect very deeply with ourselves and with others. It's a sense of belonging. Um, it's recognizing it's correct to want to be happy and that all beings want to be happy. 
And um, I was really taken with the line, I think, because it matched so strongly some of the experiences I had practicing in Burma, where I realized that before some of those experiences, I had the idea very much that love was in the hands of someone else. Mm. And they could deliver it to me, in which case my life would have love, or they could take it away from me, in which case I'd have nothing. And I'd just be bereft. And I kept getting this image of, like, the UPS person standing at my doorstep, <laughs> package, looking at the address and saying, no, nah, I don't think so, I'm going away. I go, wait a minute. Um, and to just begin to understand, like, no, it's inside me. Mm. People might spark it or threaten it, but it's mine, really. Which also means it's mine to tend. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it gives you control, but it gives you responsibility. And the idea that there's an ability there, it gives you the hope that you can learn and do better when you know better. That's right. Yeah, that's really inspiring. Again, I'll put all the links uh, for these two episodes and all the other episodes we talked about today in the show notes so you can find them easily. And wow, truly, what a journey it's been these first hundred episode. If you've been here since the beginning, thank you so, so much. If you're newer to this podcast, I hope you'll go back. I hope that this uh, recap gave you kind of a place to start to discover more episodes. Thank you so much for joining us today. And that concludes our recap anniversary episode. There are so many more episodes I loved recording and I wished I could have talked about today. So I encourage you to listen to them. In the meantime, cheers to the next 100 episode and to the many, many more teachers and leaders I'd like to connect with and connect you with. If you're dying to hear me chat with a particular teacher, someone you look up to, please email me at erica.belanger at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at on and off your mat podcast. In the meantime, help other people find this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing wherever you listen. Come and connect with us on Instagram at on and off your mat podcast and visit withribbon.com slash you slash Erica Belanger to become a premium member. And you can also check the show notes to find a complete list of episodes that were voted for that are our top five most listened and any other episode I talked about today. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for their support in making this possible. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time.